the world is changing and it has been designed by men for so many years. So we need to start looking at it as it would be a blank canvas and start to see what has worked and how we can restructure some things. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. 360 Degree City is brought to you by the team at Intelligent Futures. We're a team of versatile urban problem solvers, and our aim is to figure out better ways of living together. Far too often, the people making decisions about our cities look too much like me. White, male, able-bodied, and if they're really like me, losing a bit of their hair. But if we want equitable cities and communities, we need a far wider range of folks at the table. So today, I'm talking to Patty Rios about the steps we need to take to create inclusive cities. My name is Patty, and uh, I work at Happy City. It's a Vancouver-based architecture and urban planning consultancy, and our priority is to boost happiness and design for well-being. In this episode, Patty and I discuss her experiences in architecture school, some important urban and interior design considerations that are left out when it's just men at the table, and how we can make engagement processes more inclusive. In this episode, you'll hear a variety of background sounds, from a saxophone player to a dog and his squeaky toy. These are some of the joys of recording in a co-working space near a busy street. Can you maybe share your experiences uh, growing up and your education in architecture school? And then particularly if there's a a frame, a set of insights of learnings uh, as it relates to issues around gender inequality. Sure, absolutely. So um, I I grew up in a small city, actually, two hours north from Mexico City. It's called Querétaro. And I keep saying that it's a small city. However, it's a one million people city. (laughs) And, uh, it's all relative. <laughs> not, exactly. So it's not that small, but I remember growing up in the, in the suburbs. And uh, I remember that uh, when we moved there, when I was six years old, uh, the most common thing to do after school was just, just to play in the streets. And um, the first house that we were living in, I remember it, has, it had this amazing garden. Well, actually, it was an empty lot that has, hadn't had built. And one of the neighbors had the amazing idea of just um, putting some grass in it. And uh, then we started building a tree house and we would use this space to play all the afternoon. Uh, so it was, a, you know, like, as I recall this experience, it was one of the early beginnings for me to understanding that I didn't need it to be at home to have fun. I could be in the street and it was safe and we could run around and the dog would be like also running with us and just meet with neighbors and friends. Hmm. So that was was pretty amazing. Um, I grew up in the city as as I grew older and started like getting into high school, college. I immediately uh, started using the car. It wasn't a very public transit oriented city. And um, I mean, as every probably like young teenager, I was uh, excited by the sense that I was, by the fact that I was going to be using a car and that I was going to be uh, riding across the city. And it doesn't last that long when you start figuring out that there's also traffic Mm -hmm. and there's also chaos in the streets. Um, But yeah, I, I, I kind of like was really emerged into studies. So um, then I went to uh, architecture school. Um, I think that one of the, 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 the things that I remember uh, a lot about architecture is having all of these wonderful experiences. 
getting to know cities, getting to know new people, new perspectives. But you know, when I think about the equity side, I don't think that I had that much of female teachers. Um, most of my professors were male architects, and if I had any uh, women teachers, they would be running probably the theoretical courses, mm. not exactly the studios. The only, th yeah, <laughs> interesting, right? <laughs> the only thing that I quite remember was that um, one of my professors during one of the mm. studios, uh, a male architect, we were designing a theater, and one of his questions was, why are you designing the washrooms in that way? And I'm like, what way? I mean, I'm dividing them among uh, men and women. And he's like, well, have you ever be been to a theater and have you ever been standing in the woman's line for at least 10 minutes before you were able to get in? And I'm like, well, yeah. And then what do we do about this? It was kind of like the first time that I understood that we were just used to the things and that they were meant to happen in a certain way and that this was just going to be replicated. I think that that was my first kind of like um, close contact with gender inequity and how the design wasn't addressing this. But I was really grateful that this professor marked that moment in my life. Um, and after architecture school, I went to, into graduate studies and I usually selected supervisors that were female. And I'm very grateful about this because I, I think that I started seeing a, a new perspective about the world that was out there. Um, my PhD supervisor actually, uh, she's from Italy. And I remember that in our conversations, it wasn't not that much about like the design of the space, but actually about like human mm -hmm. interactions and what we wanted to achieve and uh, what were the values that were embedded in society and what were the values that we wanted to prioritize through the design of the city. So oh. I remember having these conversations with her, very stimulating, mm, yeah. um, a lot of engagement conversations and um, she, she's kind of like my hero around engagement and uh, she has been doing this for a long time. And now that she has been, she's retired, she's actually an activist and she's leading marches and talks and um, it's, it's very inspiring. And even my postdoctoral supervisor, uh, she's also a woman, just, just to, to, sh to see how a woman could enter into a room and be the center of attention and have this gravitas <laughs> about her knowledge and about what she wanted to share that day was amazing. Um, I learned so much from the engagement part with her. And I think that one of the most important um, things that I'm, I, I have taken since is that it's, it's not about finding the perfect solution, but it's about finding the holistic approach that is going to work for everyone. Mm. And when when you, when you mentioned the, the the sort of gravitas that that your advisor brought into a room, did that stand out for you? Um, I guess on its own, or did it stand and or did it stand out um, in addition to like you hadn't seen many um, examples or role models that were women that that had that. I think that I hadn't seen like so many uh, like m models that were like that. I hmm, think okay. that uh, my perspective was around like, whenever I would find like, a woman role model, it was more about the fact that it was a very strong woman, a very strong voice, with very um, um, kind of like a 
set mind of her own where everything is decided, but she was all the way around. She was inviting into conversation. She was trying to hear everyone. She was laughing about whatever mistakes she would make, but at the same time, she didn't, she didn't lose gravitas. So it mm, was it, gotcha, it was gotcha. very refreshing to see like how a person how a woman could be like both both respected followed uh, be a guide in that moment and um, and at the end we had marvelous results from each and every session or workshop that we were with her. Mm, okay, so that, that yeah, so that's really helpful because I think oftentimes, um, you know, in in many of the city build, building professions, um, the the conversation around you know the the, the framing of expertise is um, that gravitas comes from all the knowledge in your brain and everybody should just adhere to that. Um, versus, uh, <laughs> you can still have that, but still be humble enough and open enough to uh, ask questions and add to the expertise in the room that might not be that might not come from a school it might come from the lived experience yeah. in a particular community and so to have that um I, yeah it's, an, it's a unique combination um i think most city building professionals need a bit more of 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 the actual knowledge that you have which a lot of people focus on but but also the confidence to be open and learn more um, there's actually more confidence that comes from listening, uh, I think, instead of just you know you, you feeling or thinking that you need all the answers in inside yourself. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like how um, we used to think that the people that had more knowledge were the ones that were uh, in the in, in the most. Um, uh, favorable spot to make the decisions. However, um, mm -hmm. I mean, knowledge is all around the internet and it's online and you can find it everywhere and you can hear podcasts and you can hear people's speaking and uh, it's about what you do with that knowledge that is, I think, that most important. And having mm -hmm. the ability to listen and, and actually listen and not just be preparing what you are going to respond when someone <laughs> is talking, it's what makes a difference in between a good leader um, in the case that it might be like this person might be uh, guiding a meeting and just trying to push through an agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, so maybe let's dive into some specific issues around design and planning and, and the issues of, of, of gender. So uh, what would be some of the specific I mean you gave a great example and it's it's one of those that that you know could seemingly be be small and not meaningful but your example of the washroom in the theater uh, mm -hmm. is a really good one but what what are some specific other specific design or planning considerations that are often left out when it's just men that are the only ones at the table well when it's just men at the table I mean uh, the first thing that we gotta notice is that we're we're leaving out 50% of the population and uh, mm -hmm. so we are building on the perspective on just one half of the population and that's that's the most important fact I think uh, one of the specifics is for example like think about snowplow um, so whenever there's a big storm and the streets are covered with snow and the sidewalks are covered with snow uh, the city has designed that the first thing that needs to be plowed are the streets why because people need to get to work and most likely people are going to be taking their cars if they are coming into the city but if we look at this and, anal and analyze this uh, from the woman's perspective, it's, it doesn't show equity in the approach in the sense that uh, 
mainly men are the ones that are using cars to get into the city, but women are more likely to use the public transport. And women are more likely as well to be first leaving their kids at school or doing any other errands in the morning and they need to use the sidewalks. So what happens, like the three first hours after uh, they start cleaning the streets, men are going to be the ones that get to work first or to their activities and women are going to be delegated to them to the end. And uh, it's not only about the fact that we need to consider all of the population, but this actually has an effect in GDP and uh, the way that the amount of accidents that happen in the sidewalks are even more hmm. than the ones that are happening in the street with cars. So it is much easier to go like with a car and drive through three inches of snow that go through a, with a stroller or with a kid and try to get them to school because there's snow in the sidewalk. So it's just about like this. You wouldn't imagine that there's a connection between gender equity, uh, between how you clean the streets after a snowstorm, but it actually is. If you want to learn more about how snowplowing can be sexist, check out Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. It's a great book explaining how our cities, schools, offices, and hospitals typically leave out the needs of women. And another, another one that is very interesting, the way that we are designing our public spaces. Uh, so public spaces are designed usually so that people can enjoy them during the daylight. But as we all know, uh, there's a lot of countries, a lot of cities in the world that the daylight is going to be short during several months of the year. So that means that from uh, starting from 3 to 4 p.m., probably we're not going to have light anymore. So that means that women become the more vulnerable population to be crossing across the public, uh, the public realm, public spaces. And if we haven't decide, designed with enough lights, and if we don't consider the quality of that light, that can also be dangerous. So take, for instance, uh, a woman that uh, is walking through a soccer field and this kind of light is very intense and it actually doesn't allow you to see what's happening like five meters where you are across from, from where you are walking. So it completely blinds you. So instead of creating this safe spot where you are actually able to see what's going to happen, it blinds you. So it makes the same effect as not having this, uh, a proper amount of illumination of lighting. So um, this is another, another one of the, the factors that also uh, affects how a woman uses a city. I can't recall how long ago it was. It was probably within the last year, maybe a little more. Um, there was, there was a, a Twitter trend and it was talking about what, basically asking women, what would you do if, uh, at night if men didn't exist? And it was really um, <laughs> basic, but also disturbing for somebody, uh, you know, a relatively able-bodied male that, you know, th again, this this frame um, doesn't come across my day-to-day. -day. It comes across more and more because I have a wife and a daughter, and that that helps me broaden my my perspective. But it was it was it was really, um, yeah, I'd say disturbing how basic. The things were I would go for a run I would go get groceries uh, these kinds of things that folks feel that they that women feel that they, they can't go do um, just because of the uh -huh. safety issue and, and lighting and, and and public design it was it was really um, you know and there was lots of Twitter re replies of, of men mm -hmm. that were saying you know they were thanking people for sharing that because they it, it was eye-opening to them so uh, just uh, I'll, I'll see we'll see if we can find it and post some of the, the some of that on the show notes because 
because it was really, like I say, so basic, but so jarring at the same time. Uh-huh. It is, it is indeed very basic. I mean, I was just trying to think about what would I do, I mean, uh, with that situation. Mm. Uh, I think that, I mean, I would do everything that I do on a daily basis, but there were like, there would be like other small things that probably change. For example, I know that when I have to use a subway or when I'm going to bike to work, I got to select my clothes accordingly. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I'm not going to be able to wear a skirt probably, or um, I'm just going to like cover myself and make sure that I'm not driving attention to myself. Mm -hmm. That that would be for me the difference. And and of course, like depending on the city that you live, you it's a different experience the, the one that you live. Um, I travel a lot in between Vancouver and Mexico, and it's completely different the patterns that I follow when I'm walking around in Mexico City and when I'm walking in Vancouver. Mm, okay. uh, just from the fact that in Vancouver, I can be walking um, with my headphones and just listening to music, and uh, probably just lower a little bit down the volume so that I can hear cars and know what's happening in the surroundings. But in Mexico City, I know that if I'm walking my dog uh, after eight in the dark, I'm not going to be wearing headphones for sure mm. because I need to be aware about the noises and what is happening in my surroundings. So even though I feel safer with a dog, I still need to take extra care of myself because I want to avoid any um possible bad circumstance mm -hmm. and and does the the walking of the dog is that is that part of the eight o'clock at night uh walk like do you w would you choose to go on a walk by yourself at eight o'clock at night in mexico city where you live oh no definitely not and uh i i wouldn't choose to go to walk uh without my dog uh, after eight uh and especially i live just across a park and it's a it's a wonderful park it has uh had some history about being unsafe at some points and then being very very safe but uh, it's just crossing through a park and it has good lighting and there's other people walking as well. But it's just, you know, there's history and right. you want to make sure that you're on the safe side. For sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's one. I mean, personal safety is not something you ever want to uh, mess around with. And if there's there's history and, mm -hmm. and just yeah. understanding these these layers, like like you mentioned, even even uh, the clothes you wear. Um, I'm one of the least uh -huh. least stylish people ever, so I give it no no thought. But, but for <laughs> but for for folks to uh, to for women to have to go through that, it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's again um, kind of disturbing and kind of basic all at once, which is not great. It's just another layer that you have to include into your morning routine mm -hmm. and that you have to start thinking about uh, specific things and you have to plan all the day so that you know, like, for example, I, I don't use a, a car to go to work. I use a bicycle and sometimes I'm going to have a meeting, so I'm going to use public transport. And if at some point I need an Uber, then that makes another time of commuting, which actually reminds me about this um, other uh, very interesting difference in how uh, women and men experience the city. And it's just the, the daily patterns. And women are more likely to do trip chaining, so to do like more trips during the day. Mm -hmm. And there are more likely to walk, to use a bike, to use public transport, to probably use a cab. And men are more likely to just use the car to go to work and then back. Mm. But women need to add these items, like, for example, just um, leaving the kid in the school or picking up groceries or going to the dry cleaners or going to the pharmacy. So it adds up. And if you consider how cities were designed um, in the 
mid-19s, it was all about the car and it was prioritizing men that were living in suburbia or in uh, in whatever neighborhood they were living to get to their work and then get back. But since women weren't working, or at least not most of them, then those kind of trips weren't as prioritized as the car. So cities start to be designed according to the car. And that's where we start seeing the highways that are built across all cities and killing most of the walkable neighborhoods that existed at that point. And it just makes you think, like, why if we are, if we know that these patterns exist, the train chaining, why do we keep building cities in the same way? And why do we keep investing in the same elements? And how does this reflect in our GDP? I don't know if there's actually a study that has actually um, been uh diving into this, but I'm sure that it has a deep impact. Uh, how long is it going to take a mom to drive her kid to the daycare and then go to work instead of going to work and directly having a daycare in the ground floor and being able to visit your kid like for one hour during lunch? Right. right. So it just... It talks to the how, how we organize our lives, but also how we're more, we are more economically efficient and how we also spend more time building bonds than commuting. Right, right, which is, <clears throat> which is one of the, the, you know, the criticisms of the auto-oriented city, um, but this just puts another uh, really important layer uh, on that and and sort of bolsters the argument uh, just from a, a, another layer or a different perspective, which is which is hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so it, are, are there any other examples you can think of uh, or actions that have been implemented uh, in terms of, you know, we've, we've talked about uh, kind of the city perspective, the city design. Um, mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. other uh, uh, actions can you think of that, that could be implemented or carried out um, in women's lives uh, in, say, office space or, or transit or even in their own homes that's, uh, that, that can accommodate um, the needs of, of, of women in our cities? So there's two examples. And the first one, uh, we run into this um this piece of evidence uh, because we were preparing a workshop and we were trying to go deep into interior design and how the office environment might affect the way in which we are productive and we are creative. So, um, well, the first one is that we found that um, women are, mo- are likely to have a lower um, metabolic rate than men. Uh, however, like the temperature that was determined as being the ideal for office space was determined in the 1960s, considering a 40-year-old man and uh, weighing 154 pounds. Uh, so you can imagine that women's metabolic rate being 30, 30 or 35% lower than men, uh, it is more likely for them to feel cold. And when women feel cold, they are less likely to be creative and to be efficient. So if you just consider like this little pattern or this little design flaw in how the temperature is controlled and how it is um, it is uh, favoring the way that men are used to work instead of how women would be in a more comfortable space, then you start as well questioning the fact of how could we be able to control a little bit more our temperature in these uh, open floor plans in offices where we are working this nowadays and that we are all subject like to the same uh, room temperature. 
so so that's one mm-hmm. uh, the only piece the other piece of information that we found about the office space was that women are more likely to make calls like personal calls uh, during uh, office hours so when they're at the workplace uh, they're gonna be probably like arranging doctor appointments for children or they are gonna be talking to a parent or they are gonna be making sure that the electrician goes to home at five because they need to fix something so um, the suggestion was well we need to start building or including uh, phone booths in every single office space so that women feel comfortable about all of these things that they need to carry on during the office hours and not feel that they are uh, missing out or interrupting in the open floor space plan Uh, but then it got me thinking I mean is it really about just including phone booths in the places where they are more likely to be dominated by women? Or is it about including uh, phone booths in all offices so that you can start seeing a change in behavior and not only women, but actually men are also um, encouraged to be taking care of those personal appointments or um, personal tasks during office hours? And it wouldn't take like more than 15 minutes a day probably, but it's opening the possibility for men and women to being responsible about taking care of their home and their family in an equitable way and the office space is promoting it. So it's about also about the way we frame it. It's not about just adding things so that women can have happier lives or to increase the amount of tasks that they are able to do through the day. But how are we promoting an equitable approach to how work is accessible to everyone in which the taking care of the home is accessible to everyone and also like growing up a family is accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's um, thank you for that because that's uh, extraordinarily timely, selfishly for me, because we're in the middle of designing uh, a mixed-use project for my family and my company. Uh, so we're designing office space for, for intelligent features as we speak. Uh, so this is really, really helpful, selfishly for me. Um, but, but that's... Uh, uh, it's, it's, I'm glad. <laughs> it's it's um, two, two birds with... Two birds with one stone. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, the other thing that I was thinking about is um, there's, we know that families are changing and the way that we perceive a family is uh, no longer like a mom, a dad and two or three kids. Uh, Families come all in all sorts of flavors and colors and with different members of the family. So as we start imagining how 21st century families look like it might be like two moms and one kid it might be one dad and two kids it might be one mom and three kids and uh, or, or maybe um the extended family is living with the mom and the dad to take care of the three kids so as we start analyzing all of this um, different configurations we also start looking at homes and how apartments are built because you know like cities are growing and we know that um, we need to start including more densified areas and while apartments and skyscrapers have been kind of like the Uh, easiest answer to this uh, growth in density, they are not the most um, friendly typology in which we are building homes. 
But then we start thinking and adding complexity to this part in which culture is changing and how families are changing. And then one of the things that we have been working with and that we were imagining is like, well, what if you start by adding more spaces to socialize? What if you start tailoring buildings, uh, multifamily buildings in a way in which there's space for everyone? So you don't have just two bedroom apartments across the building so that you are expecting the same amount of people to live in each and every single apartment, but you actually consider the single bachelor bachelor uh, apartment and then you have the family apartment probably with two bedrooms or three bedrooms or even with an extended family that has a possibility of having a three bedroom plus one uh, bedroom that can be rented or can be flexible across um, across time so that the residents can use it for different purposes and And, and building on this idea, what happens when uh, we start under, uh, understanding that the amenity rooms, for example, that are so underused in um, building apartments, start, uh, you could take that space and actually build it into the hallways. So you know, for example, that whenever a mom is heavily pregnant and is in her last eight or ninth month, or uh, it's in probably has already given birth and it's the three first months. Most likely what I hear from my friends is uh, it's such a lonely time because you spend a lot of time inside your house. You don't have like clear connection. Uh, yeah, there's family visiting, but after that, I mean, you're all alone and you're not allowed probably like to leave your home. And this is something that happens to a lot of people. So that increases the likelihood to have postpartum depression as well. But what if we start building communities And the design takes the shape of this community in the way that um, social corridors, for example, that are connecting the doorway, the different doors to the apartments are not just uh, a hallway, but are actually a social corridor when you can have like a Dutch door that opens to the corridor or you can have a little table for kids to play or you can have a coffee table so that you can meet with a neighbor or you can have a space where you kill appliances and you can share those appliances with neighbors. So as we understand what are the barriers and what are the different challenges that we face through life, we understand that there's a different way in which we could be responding to them and that we could be promoting more positive social connections. Patty and her team at Happy City have done a lot of fascinating research about how we can think about multifamily homes. Their Happy Homes Toolkit provides considerations for how we can design housing that's more sociable. Check out the link in our show notes. That's that's a really insightful and, and it, it just you know like I'm thinking you know knowing that that you have uh, a lot of a lot of time and connection with Vancouver uh, some friends and relatives that live in uh, in apartments in Vancouver got me thinking about those kinds of spaces they have um, party spaces and gathering spaces that basically just collect dust and then the hallways are utilitarian yeah. spaces that everyone just gets through as quickly as possible and so um yeah, yeah just that that idea of reconfiguring your uh how you understand a city or how you understand a community and and the form that could follow that um it's really really interesting Um, one, one of the things I wanted to, to, uh, chat with you about was, um, so we've talked a lot about the, the physical elements, uh, of the city and, and how it relates to these issues of gender. Um, 
how, how can we, the, the kind of the process of city building and the conversations that we have collectively in our communities, um, how, how can we make engagement processes uh, more inclusive from your perspective? That's a tough one. Uh, but I also love this question. Um, I think that um, one of my uh, favorite topics is engagement, of course. And I think that there are three aspects that we need to work with. Uh, the first one, uh, and talking about um, creating a more inclusive city, would be to have more women designing cities, just have more women uh, in authority positions. And I'm gonna get like deeper in each one of this, but uh, I just wanted to mm. kind of flag them. So that's the first one, having more women in authority positions that are able to design cities. The second one, we need a different approach or upgrade our engagement process so that women actually participate. There are so many things and so many ways that we could be improving this engagement process, and I'll also get into that. Uh, the third one is that I think that this is the most difficult one to do is we need to toss out the window the established agreements, the established paradigms. Uh, the world is changing and it has been designed by men for so many years. So we need to start looking at it as it would be a blank canvas and start to see what has worked and how we can restructure some things. But going back a little bit like to the first aspect that I was mentioning, uh, that we need more women designing cities and in authority position. So it's very interesting how, for example, in planning schools and architecture schools, 60% of the enrolled students are likely to be women. But then as they move into the workforce, uh, this number starts decreasing. So it is likely that by the time where women are in between like 33 or 35 years old, this has been reduced in planning positions to 30%. So there's a very interesting study that talks about like what are the different aspects or what could be probably the different aspects that are causing this decrease. And I mean, it's, it's very simple, actually, if you think about this. So you graduate and probably you end up doing a master's and then you are 26, 27 years old. Then you go into the job and uh, you start working as a junior architect or planner. And then as you start getting, getting a little bit of more seniority, you reach your 33 or 30 35 years old and then the biological clock is ticking as well so if you want to be able to have kids but also to have a good professional career it kind of makes you puts you in a very stressful position in which you actually have to choose at least for the next two or three years so this becomes a barrier in the sense that um, you have to move away a little bit from the workforce and then find the adequate way and the tools so that you can be engaged again and what happens is that um, we think that there are policies in place that are going to support women having full lives but there are so many things that still can be done so this is one of the reasons that women don't get to this authority position until probably they are like 38 or 40 years old but then they have to make a life decision before that the other part is that there are not, not a lot of positions where women are going to find the possibility uh, to, to shine and to be able to be in the, in the workplace. Uh, what do I mean by this? Um, there's a lot of competitiveness, and especially if you don't consider quotas and one way of moving the needle a little bit forward, then you are going to find women, instead of collaborating, competing for a position. 
So we need to increase as well the position, the number of positions that are available for women so that you know that women are going to help each other instead of being competing for the same spot. And then finally, I mean, just just being a woman, I mean, so many, as a woman, you hear so many times this uh, phrase about, well, let's try to keep the emotional, to dial down the emotion a little bit. Uh, let's try to be a little bit more efficient. Let's try to be more rational. Uh, there are so many things that are, are pointed out that makes women feel that, that there's something wrong with them in the way that they probably like process a situation or try to address a problem that this, of course, lowers uh, your confidence. So instead of like trying to fix how women think, it would be about embracing how women think and how we can make the best of how the different like men's brains and women's brains can actually work together. Mm-hmm. So and that's think, just an idea. Yeah, out there. yeah, for sure. And those are, <clears throat> I think, really important, um, you know, societal cultural issues. And then that translates obviously to um, individual organizations within societies within professions um to think about that and 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 the the um at every chance to challenge assumptions um you know because a lot of times folks don't uh exp- you know they, they aren't front of mind they just assume certain things and there could there's generational issues for sure but um you know i've spoken with women that that uh are in tremendous spots in their career um and they're in positions mm-hmm. of um, really strong influence. And, and they've told me that, you know, as, as one speci- very specific example, long ago, they stopped bringing notebooks to meetings because it's, it's assumed <laughs> in a meeting that they'll just take the notes for everybody or take the minutes. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, they're out of, well, they, they just, it's a, it's a practice a habit that they just stopped and just sort of avoid that, that assumption, um, but again, like one of those things that I would, until I heard these stories, I would never think to bring a notebook or not based on those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's well, a really micro you- to the macro. It's, it's, these issues need to be addressed in every way. Absolutely. And now that you mentioned this, another strategy also when you're coming into a meeting space, just sit as far away from the coffee maker as you can. <laughs> because if not, you might be expected to bring the coffee yeah. to everyone. Yeah, bonkers. <laughs> it's bonkers. And and I think like the one of the great ones is like how we carry on engagement. And I wanted to just talk a little bit about this because the way that we carry on engagement is so systematized that we are missing a lot of voices. And by the way that it needs to fit like the also like the um, office hours, we we don't get a lot of um, participation from people that might be at work. And what happens is that we get ending up with the same people participating in community workshops or engagement in which we have like a lot of gray hair in the room. So if we start understanding how or working around women's schedules and when they are going to be like taking, for example, kids to school or if they are going to be free at 7 p.m. or if they're going to free, be free probably in the morning or if we need to consider someone or uh, to uh, to implement uh, a temporary daycare in a specific public sp- public space while we are doing this workshop, then that's the way to go. Because if we don't understand the barriers and the challenges, then we are not making it easy. And public policy is all about making it easy and helping people 
do what do what is gonna promote or increase their well-being. Uh, so, so that would be like one of the big ones. Uh, just understand who is not in the room and how can what can we do to bring them into the room? Because if we continue just to analyze data, to analyze patterns about what is what is being done, then we are not understanding who is missing out of these experiences because there are some barriers that haven't been addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really important point, and I think the uh, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> obviously the the engagement process. Uh, focuses on who is in the room and what they've said and then takes translates whatever is said in the room as the voice of the community. But if you ask that really fundamental, simple but fundamental question, who's not in the room and why aren't they there? Um, then yeah. you you start to modify your process and start to see the, the diversity of insights that are often uh, not represented when it's easy for, you know, affluent uh homeowners yeah. to show up <laughs> exactly yeah yeah for sure as a particular example yeah <laughs> so if if you could say anything to uh aspiring female planners or designers out there um what kinds of tips encouragements advice would, would you give those folks that are listening I, I would tell them um just to be to be bold to dare to say what they think out loud. I would tell them that uh, things have happened in a certain way because we haven't dared to speak out and what we think that uh, might be right. Uh, there's a culture default. There's, there's a male default in all of our brains, no matter if you are a male or if you are a woman. So we need to start addressing that and being very critical about the way and the, the decision-making process that we are taking. And while designing, you shouldn't like not shut down your fears and perceptions. You are not required to think like a man. We bring a different lens into the design of the city. And women have actually a superpower. Uh, For centuries, we have relied in creating trust in relationships and taking care of others. So social trust is at the top of our values. So whenever there's um, your God telling you that there's something that needs to be done to encourage some kind of positive relationship, it needs to be done. Uh, Also, don't be afraid to ask, to ask for more. And don't be afraid to fill a quota because at the beginning you can be a quota, but also you have the abilities and you have all what it takes to shine in that spot. And don't be afraid of wanting a fulfilling life that includes a personal and a professional life because it is possible. It's not asking for too much. And I think, yeah, <laughs> I think that the last one is don't, don't see women as competition, as your competition. Um, we are old. We are all in the same pathway. We are all facing the same challenges. So why not give a hand to the person that is besides you? And uh, whatever one head is not going to come up with, two heads maybe will. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, make sure to share this, uh, this particular part of the interview with my nine-year-old. <laughs> Awesome. Um, well, just yeah. we just have uh, one more one more question. It's something that we ask uh, all the guests on the podcast. Uh, can you tell me about a city that you love and why you love it? Um, I love so many cities. Um, one of the cities that I love is Rio de Janeiro, and um, it's not close to be the most equitable city. Uh, it's just the diversity that it brings into the world. It's amazing. Um, 
there's such a wide variety of people. There's such a wide variety of activities happening. The city is alive during the day, during the night. There's so much social trust. And of course, there's there's a lot of like social issues that are happening there, but it kind of like has all of the right elements that it takes to build a great city. It's about just about ordering a little bit the processes and making systems so that people can actually shine and flourish. But I, I would say that's one of my favorite. It has the, be the, the perfect mix in between culture and geographical diversity as well. So you can be on top of a mountain in one moment and you can be close to the sea in the other. And you can be listening to jazz and then you can be listening to a rumba during the night. So it's, it's got it all. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of the, the I was floored when I went. It was just yeah, <laughs> it, it just it's it's one of the most alive cities I've ever been to. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, that's that's yeah that that's the description. It's an alive city. This conversation with Patty was eye opening for me in the best way possible. Although we have a ton of work to do to create more equitable cities for everybody, I'm inspired that change is occurring. If we start considering the varied impacts of how snowplow routes are planned, or how office spaces are designed, how public spaces are constructed, we'll be making positive progress towards more inclusive cities for everybody. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.